Welcome to the workshop, One Ultimate Authority. My name is Sherry, and I'm a compulsive overeater and the moderator for this session. Hi, Sherry. Help us preserve the cherished tradition of anonymity by refraining from taking pictures in this or any other meeting. The format for this session is a reading, two speakers, and ask-it-basket questions. A basket with paper and pencil will be circulated for you to write any questions you may have for the speakers. Specify whom your question is for, and we'll probably circulate that a couple of times. I think I'll circulate it after the first speaker and again after the second speaker, but we'll take them all at the end. Um, the reading is from the OA 12 and 12, pages 126 and 127. Many of us come to OA with years of experience trying to operate our families, friendships, or work relationships by power or manipulation. We have been amazed by how well the second tradition works in OA, by what happens when we become willing, willing simply to serve the group and let our higher power govern through the group conscience. We find that most people are willing to cooperate cheerfully with decisions they help to make. Instead of arguing, sulking, nagging, or commanding, we learn in OA to state our needs and desires in an adult way and to let others tell us theirs expressing our willingness to go along with any decision which takes everyone's needs into account. Anger and bitterness are often replaced by harmony and peace when we treat each person as important and really listen to what everyone has to say. When this happens, a loving God's will is expressing itself through us and through our OA group. Our first speaker is Felice from San Fernando Valley, and she will speak for 25 minutes. Hi, my name is Felice. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Felice. And I'm just going to read Tradition 2 because that's what this, this um, session is on. For a group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. And I'm going to speak on the second half of this. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Um, just very briefly, I'm, I'm in program 14 years. I had a lot of abstinence and then had a quite awful relapse and have been abstinent for about two and a half years now. Um, by, definitely by the grace of God, I got out of that black hole of total despair. And um, I've done a lot of positions in, in OA. From, this is a Region 2 convention. I've been on the Region 2 board. World Service, and I've been delegates, secretaries, coffee makers, timers, taking the trash out, you name it, I've, I've done it. Sponsee, sponsor. Unfortunately, relapse I have experience with, or, um, or maybe fortunately, I don't know, because I came back stronger and more willing than ever. Um, but what I do want to talk about is um, sort of the... the uh, the business part of OA a little bit and why, in my opinion, OA still stands strong today. Um, you know, the 12 steps have been around for many, many years since the 30s and as we see today, many corporations are falling left and right, you know, between, you know, WorldCom and Enron and, you know, unfortunately, you know, Martha Stewart's company, more and more what we're seeing them fall apart and and, 
you know, I think the main reason is the power struggle that goes on in these companies. I don't think it's so much money for these CEOs who have millions of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to get millions more. I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is power. And I think that's why in Overeaters Anonymous, we are so fortunate that there are no leaders. Um, it doesn't matter if you've been in program five minutes or five years. It doesn't even matter if you're abstinent or not. The only, you know, your commitment is that you want to be here, you want to get better. You say you're a compulsive overeater, so you are, you're a member of the group. And because of that, if you're in a meeting, you have a say. You have a say to vote. You have a say to your opinion. Now, some people might think that someone who's not abstinent, maybe they shouldn't have an opinion. Maybe they're not clear-headed and they shouldn't have something to say. But where do we draw the line? Then it's getting into, you know, I'm over you and you're over here and you're up here. So, you know, we really, I think we also take risks because of that. But all in all, we're still standing strong after all, the, all those years in unity. And, and the, the blessing is that um, even though each group is autonomous, we follow basically the same guidelines with the traditions. The traditions are you know, sort of like our rules, and it, it keeps us um, keeps us focused and keeps us from getting out of the personalities. Um, in my outside life, I have to deal with, with people all the time. I have to, uh, you know, I, I run HR for a corporation and run a special event. So I am, I don't know if you want to call it a position of, you know, quote, power, but I have to make decisions. I have to hire people. I have to let people go. I have to pick and choose amongst this or that. What program has done, it's given me the ability, even though, Maybe in the outside world I am in a position of power and I am in a position of sole decision-making. What Overeaters Anonymous has taught me is how to do it with respect, how to do it fairly, courteously, leaving out my judgment, leaving out my resentments. Um, you know, in HR I deal with a lot of personalities, a lot of people. I get to see things like everyone's salaries and everyone's promotions. And while I personally may or may not agree with some of them that are out of my control, I have to be dignified and respectful, and I learned that here. I learned how to live my life here. So outside of these rooms, I, I don't think I'd be where I am today because I, you know, I come from, um, you know, uh, being A, a people pleaser, but B, being jealous and resentful. You know, I want you to have it because I'm a people pleaser, but I only want you to have it on the outside. On the inside, I want to take it away, and I want it. You know, that's just where my disease takes me. So in, in program, I'm able to... Just be balanced and, and focused um, and just let it, let it all really, really just stay, stay in balance. Um, I, I wrote down five points that I was going to talk about because I want to stay focused on, on the topic. Usually if I speak at a meeting, I'm sort of telling my, my story from, you know, what happened, what it was like, what happened now. And, and given a topic, it's harder for me to, to do that. Um, um, so I'll glance down every few minutes, and I'm trying to speak slow because 25 minutes is a long time. Uh, <laughs> except if I'm speaking at work, I could speak for hours, but it's, it's you know, it's a little intimidating. Um, I, I recall I was at a meeting once um, in, at my, you know, in my intergroup, and there was, um, this is a perfect example of where, you know, the group conscious, we talk about, um, 
you know, that no one is, is in charge and we take group consciousness when we're, when we're dealing with the situation, but there was somebody in one of our meetings who was, um, who was eating during the meeting, and it wasn't an eating meeting, and people were getting uncomfortable. And there's nowhere in those steps or in those traditions does it say you can't eat at a meeting. It doesn't say it. Most of us don't. It's just sort of something... I mean, I used to go to Weight Watchers, and when I went to Weight Watchers, you know, half the people are eating their breakfast during the meeting, but it's somehow you sort of know when you come to OA, you just, you know, don't eat at a meeting, but it's not your rule, you know, and, and there are not too many rules. It's all guidelines and suggestions. Um, so people are getting uncomfortable, and, you know, we didn't know what to do, and and we, when she wasn't there, we took a group conscience, and we decided as a group that the secretary would politely, not to embarrass her, speak to her, um, you know, outside of the meeting, after the meeting was over, and we wouldn't have all gang up on her. And, and um, she did that, and the woman didn't care. She just continued to do what she was doing. But the beauty of it is is that um, it, it, it was all okay because she was given a suggestion. She didn't take it, but no one died. People made her uncomfortable for a while longer. I don't even see her. I don't know if she still goes to that meeting or not. But we did it uh, democratically. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I think a lot of people, you know, have the fear in in program that oh, if there are no rules and no regulations, you know, what's going to happen? But you know, it gets back to the first part of the tradition. There is but one ultimate authority. It all works out. If we take our ego and ourselves out of the situation, the solution will come to us. Um, when, um, you know, and it, it also it doesn't matter what kind of what kind of service you do. You're you're, you're just equal in the fellowship. Sometimes, I mean, I personally burnt out from doing all the the um, R2 work and, and the, uh, you know, being secretaries of this and that, I, I burnt out. I just needed at some point to just sit back and listen. You know, sometimes I'll come to a meeting, like I'll come to a meeting sometimes and there's a, a problem and people will, will look at me for advice and I'm basically, I get a little, like, nervous. Like, there are 50 people in this room, why are you looking at me? Um, it's, so it's, it's, Sometimes there's an old, old timer, and I'm not even that, that long in the program. I don't think 14 years is that long, but sometimes you, you bear the, uh, the burden of, of um, this sort of responsibility. And we, you know, I try to, um, I try to be gracious, but, you know, it's, sometimes it's just someone else's turn. That's why I love with service that we rotate service. Every, depending upon, you know, your meeting, if it's every year, if it's every six months, we do rotate service and, you know, give everyone a chance. And sometimes you have to take the risk. I remember the first time I became a sponsor, I was petrified. But you have to just jump in. You just have to jump in and do it. Otherwise, you'll, you know, be petrified, you know, for the rest of your life. And in, in service, service boards, there are requirements. And, you know, some of them make sense. And it's, the, the nice thing is the group decides. If it's, if it's going to be a year of service, you need to do this. If it's going to be if it's going to be an hour of service to do this. I mean, I agree with the fact that a secretary or a treasurer should have a little time because there is a responsibility to the newcomers. But I think it's great that anyone can be a timer. You know, anyone can make coffee. Anyone can take out the trash. 
for me, that was humbling when I first came into program and I said, take up the trash. I raise my hand all the time to take up the trash because I am just honored to be here. I was at a, um, a meeting once where this is when I had lost my, my abstinence a few years back where they had said you needed, um, it was suggested that you had 21 days to speak. And it was a suggestion and I didn't have to go by it. But I really, you know, felt that I had lost my privilege to speak. That meeting had said that that you, you know, this is, this is the, their guidelines. And I really felt when I, I got my abstinence back, I really felt honored and blessed that, that I would be able to speak again. It was, it was sort of like an honor. So I, I tried my best to follow what, whatever the, you know, the group consciousness of the meetings. And I, I find it interesting that, um, and it says in the book, you know, a lot of people say, well, why don't we have this and why don't we have that and how come you don't do that and how come you don't do that? And what they don't realize is that it's not you, it's, uh, it's us. Instead of saying, how come you don't do that, you know, come to a, a steering committee meeting. Come to the meetings and in that way you become us in helping in making the decisions. Um, because if it's the same people doing it over and over again, it, it does get stale and then those people do sort of think that, that it's their meeting. And that's not the way it should be. It should be, you know, fresh people coming in, coming out. Um, you're a member because you want to be. And, and you know, sometimes the, the people that have been here a long time, they need to know that and need to remember that. We need to, um, to let others take over so that, so that we can, you know, at one point I was doing so much service, I actually think that that might have, led to, to my relapse. I'm, I'm not sure. I was on every committee. I mean, I ate. That's what led to my relapse. I mean, I'm not going to blame anyone, anything else. But I was on every committee. I was on everything in the world. I was so involved. I was in this show, that show, on R2, on this, on that. And, and um, then I got pregnant, and then I had my kids. And I was still actually abstinent through the whole thing. And then I was so busy with my kids, I, I, I had twins, and I was so busy with them that I sort of stopped all my service, but I forgot that I could just go to a meeting. I forgot that I could just pick up the phone. I forgot that I could read a chapter in the book. I forgot all of those basic things, the basic reasons why we're at Overeaters Anonymous. So coming back after my, after the relapse for the two and a half years I've been back, um, and, you know, the, this is going to sound a little vain, but my biggest miracle and blessing is that I can go shop in a regular store. I mean, that, that was two and a half years of, of, you know, I just, it just really humbled me. I don't, I think that more than anything else. I don't know, I still have, I don't know, <laughs> I can't even go there. It really affected me. Um, but I, I learned to really appreciate the program more. I learned to to be a part of the group again and not, I don't know if I was trying to be Miss OA. I don't know what I was doing. I mean, even in coming to speak here today, it's the first time I've spoken at a big forum in a very long time. And, um, you know, I'm, as you could probably tell, very nervous up here. And normally I'm not nervous, you know, um, speaking. But it was very humbling for me to come back and, I have to remember to stay part of the group, group conscious, just be focused, um, to really, um, it's the best way to put it, 
you know, program comes first. We're here because we want to be. And I don't know if, if my, my time is up, but I think um, I'm probably going going to end here. And all I, all I can say is that you can make a, a Reader's Anonymous whatever you want it to be. The, you know, again, I, service is the most wonderful thing. Group conscious and the traditions enable us to to give service in many different ways and to take risks here with that. And you could do whatever you want to do in Over It Is Anonymous. You could make it your program. But from my experience, all I could say is remember the steps, remember the traditions, you know, stay focused on that, stay focused on your inner program, and, and the rest will come. Um, there are certain times, you know, with the business of OA when if you're a delegate at a delegates meeting or the, the business meetings, it gets a little it gets a little hyper, it gets a little intense, um, gets a little comical, I think. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we had a, a situation, you know, it was really terrifying on our board two years ago. We almost lost our intergroup, our entire intergroup because of situations. But, you know, we came back stronger than ever. So my belief is to just stay with your inner self, your inner core, you know, believe in the principles, believe in the steps, believe in dignity and respect, and everything else will just flow from there. Thank you for letting me share. Could we pass the ask it basket? Start that around. Our second speaker is Susan from Los Angeles, who will speak for 25 minutes. Thank you. Um, you know, you're such a small group. Normally I would like to get in a circle and talk, but I'm required to stand in front of the microphone here. Is this the one? Okay. And yay for you for being here. I got really excited about this topic, and I also knew... Did I say who I am? I'm Susan. I'm a compulsive overeater. Thank you. I got really excited about this topic, and I knew that it would be a small room. Um, because the reading came from the tradition, I don't necessarily think, I think there's probably a lot of interest in a higher authority, but I don't know how much interest there is in the traditions. So what I want to do is, is talk about how the traditions have manifested in my life. It's been uh, quite astonishing for me. And I cannot say that I have studied the traditions like I've studied the steps. I mean, I have, I've really studied the steps. and. You know, my as we've heard in other meetings today, my book is lined and penciled and there are notes, and that's not true in the traditions part of my book. In fact, we were just talking when I got the assignment, assignment from a teacher, so that's how I think of things. It said page 126 in the OA book, so I went to my book and I didn't have a page 126, and that's because I have the old OA 12. I didn't get it when it was 12 and 12. <laughs> so I went to my husband and got his book that has the traditions in it. But I have learned about the traditions from those who keep the traditions. And I've done a lot of service in OA, and I am so grateful to those people who taught me how to do my life. Um, so there is that one loving authority. First of all, I had to come to believe in a power greater than myself, and that was not easy for me. Um, 
When I got here, I was told to act as if, and I did that for quite a while, for a couple of years. And it really didn't work for me very well because I didn't really believe in anything, but I was pretending that I did. So the problem is when I really needed something, I didn't believe in it because it was just pretend to me. So the acting as if thing didn't work so well for me as much as something I heard on a tape, a program tape, and he said, you've got to believe what you believe, no more and no less. So I had to really think about it. What is it that I believe in? And the answer was not very much. I don't know what there is, but I do believe that there is something. And another person I heard at a meeting years and years ago said a story that I just loved. If he had a wound on his leg, something heals it. He doesn't. He dresses it, he cleans it, he puts the bandages on it, he does the footwork, in other words, but he doesn't do the actual healing of that wound. There's some higher force in the universe that does that. And I thought, you know, I believe in that force. I kind of like the George Lucas thing, actually, the the force. Um, and In fact, it's pretty accurate for my belief system because I know that when I'm abstinent, I can plug into that force, that um, higher power. And when I'm not abstinent, I, I don't have any sense of that force at all. It's just I'm just completely blocked from it. So that was enough, and it's always been enough. And I've never tried to make it, I've never, since that time, I've never tried to make it more than that. When I acted as if I made it a female higher power, for a while I called her Patsy, because if God had a voice, she'd sound like Patsy Klein. And um, I don't tend to like country singing that much, but I like her a lot. Um, and now... You know, my higher power doesn't have a gender, it doesn't have a face, it doesn't have anything. I just know that there's something greater than me out there. And the reason I know that is from the steps. Um, As I've worked the steps, and I heard Roseanne talk about her favorite steps six and seven this afternoon, and they're mine too, and they're what made me believe in God. Uh, Because magic just happens after those steps. It's just magic. (laughs) What happens? The psychic change that has occurred in my life has been astonishing, and I cannot contribute to anything except a higher power. So it could be that a scientist somewhere could explain to me why the wound on my leg heals, but no scientist can explain to me what happens after I start praying the seven-step prayer. So I did find a higher power that I believed in and could turn my will and my life over to that power. And everything that I have in my life and my life is amazing today, and it is not the one I planned. I was going to be a movie star. Um, you know, I love the 12 and 12 where it says every boy wants to be the president of his country. <laughs> and I don't think every boy does anymore, but, um, you know, I think most of us want to be a movie star or a rock star or a ballerina or a president or something in our in our fantasies. And um, the truth is I still do the footwork to act in films and televisions, and I would like to do that, but I don't know what's best for me. And I would never have planned on doing what I'm doing, and I absolutely know it's it's what I should be doing. So for me, everything started in OA. Everything did. Um, First, it started with the plate. You know, it started with the food. I had to let go of the food. And I learned how to grieve in Overeaters Anonymous. I learned at the plate, the meal's over. I'm really sad about that now. I would like it to be different than it is, but that's it. It's over. I'm going to go brush my teeth now. I'm going to put my lipstick on. Uh, And I learned how... You know, I kept moving on to experiencing my feelings, feeling my losses, until I was grieving the death of my father. He died when I was 10. I've been eating over that for years and years and years. Well, that started 
my learning how to grieve started here. It started with the plates. Um, when I first went to meetings, I started to talk. I don't know why. I'm, uh, I'm shy. As I think most of us are, even if, as the book describes us, we're noisy good fellows. <laughs> they describe the alcoholic that way. Underneath that facade, I think, is shyness. Um, and so I just wanted to recover. So much. I was so desperate when I got here. Um, I was 200 pounds, but that is not what I was desperate about. I was desperate about what I was doing. I was in complete hell, and I just wanted to stop doing it, and I didn't know how to stop because my life, what is that phrase, the, um, the pain of my, the pain of eating was not as bad as the pain of my life. But when I got here, you gave me the tools to stop. And uh, it was suggested to me that the very first meeting, they said, if you want to recover from compulsive overeating, raise your hand and share. So I raised my hand and share, and I've been doing that ever since. I don't even like meetings where... I don't like meetings where they're too big for me to talk. I, I need to talk. I need to come here and say what's going on with me. Um, and so I found a voice in Overeaters Anonymous. Uh, if any of you saw the show last night, I said that. I found out that I actually had things to say and that other people think I had things to say. Um, I found out that I had opinions. I found out that I had feelings. I found out in relating to you, to you, not to people outside, in relationship to you because I made friends, I found out how to tell you how I feel, tell you what I need, and have relationships. And, it, you know, in my first several years, I w it was very clear I was growing up. I had teenage relationships, and we divorced each other and, <laughs> you know, all those things that happen and, uh, when you don't really know how to relate to people. And um, the people who had what I want were doing service at, inter at the intergroup level. Uh, I had one sponsor for the first year who I adored, and um, and then my next sponsor was also working at Intergroup, and they sort of overlapped. So um, both of they didn't say you need to do service at the Intergroup level. If you want what I have, that's what you need. They didn't do that. They were just there. <laughs> that's what they were doing, and I thought, okay, I'll do that. And Intergroup became my home. This is Orange County Intergroup. I'm from Los Angeles, but I. Uh, Originally, I'm from Seattle, but then I moved to Orange County, went to OA in Orange County. Now, I live in Los Angeles, and I still go to my meetings in Orange County because it's home for me. And my home is in service bodies. Uh, okay, so where should I go from there? So I went to intergroup, and it took me about two years to speak at an intergroup meeting. Uh, it was scarier for me because it wasn't just sharing my reality. It was also having opinions, having a say. Now, how I grew up, I heard someone say what my truth was today, and I've never heard anyone else say it, and I'm sure it's true for so many of us. The mythology in my family was that I was fat, ugly, stupid, overly sensitive, overly emotional. And anything I thought must be wrong. So I never put it out there. And I was not going to put it out there in intergroup either. I wasn't going to be wrong in intergroup. And um, I started speaking at intergroup, not very much. And someone very dear to me said after I spoke one day, you know, Susan, when you speak, you can, it's like you can hear a pin dropping in the room. That's not true anymore because I talk all the time. <laughs> 
I knew it then. When she said it, I thought, you know, it's really true. People really did pay attention to what I said. And what I said wasn't wrong. In fact, what I've learned in my recovery, it's not that I, I need to be right, although I do wrestle with that some, but I have learned to indeed know what I know and see what I see and hear what I hear and say what I have to say and not ever to invalidate that because it's my truth. So I started talking to Intergroup and absolutely found a home at Intergroup. And those people are still, you know, they've moved away, they've moved to Northern California, they've moved to other parts of the country, and I still see them and love them. Some of them are here, and I get to give them a great big hug. Uh, When I walked in yesterday, I didn't even have time to say hello to all the people I know and loved. And this is someone who's shy and sort of isolated and waits for people to come to me. I'm not proud of that, but that's what I do. Um, And from my service at Intergroup, I learned how to create community. So I was teaching part-time. I'm uh, an actor, and my day job was teaching acting. I was a part-time instructor, and part-time instructing, I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit here, is slave labor. And uh, it's because you don't get benefits, you don't get job security, you get paid less than the full-time people. Uh, and and at first, that's acceptable, and then after a while, it wasn't. Uh, and that has to do with the with the growing sense of self that I got in this program. That it, uh, you know, I didn't want to be part of the slave labor force. And I knew that if I was going to complain about something, I needed to do something about it because I really was bitching about it. You know, I had an attitude about it. I was bitching about it. And there are a lot of part-time instructors who do that. And so I was uh, part of a group of three people who started to organize at our college. And I made a difference at that college, not while I was there, but um, now that college, the part-timers have office hours and they have benefits. They don't have job security yet, but um, I was in the group of three people that started that. And that's not what was so important to me. What was so important was those people became very important to me. I'm still in touch with them. And I got to know lots of other people at the college, a lot of administrators, worked with them, and got to tell them a lot about how I felt. And in one particular meeting, I started to, I cried and said, I'm really scared to talk about how I feel because I don't have any job security here. If I talk about how I feel, I may not be here next year. And... Um, the administrator of the math business department couldn't stand it, and the administrator of humanities thought it was wonderful that I was able to feel my feelings. Um, and he happened to be my administrator, so uh, I got to know him very well. We worked, we worked together a lot, and uh, at, at some point I started to pray and meditate about what I could do differently in my life because I wasn't going where I wanted to go as an actor and I was really unhappy in the slave labor market. (laughs) So um, I got the direction to apply for full-time work as a a college professor. And I did. I applied to where I'm teaching now and the president, well, number one, I had a lot of things on my resume and that I was able to talk about in the interview because of all this work I'd done at the other college. And, the, and I knew I did that work because of what I learned in Overeaters Anonymous. It's all I knew. I knew how to make community. I knew how to do service, and that's what I did there. 
So uh, the president, there were two people, two finalists, and the president called my administrator, the humanities guy, uh, and talked to him for two hours about me. This guy had two hours of things to say about me. And the reason he did is because I did service with him. Uh, that would have, you know, I, before OA, number one, I was not capable of having a job like that. I was not capable of being part of the part-time labor force, much less the full-time labor force. I had a hard time keeping my waitress jobs. I was there, I mean, I crashed cars and went to jail and bounced checks. I could not function. Uh, food does to me what drugs do to many people. So I got hired at this college, and uh, I often say it's my dream job, but my dream job is being a movie star. <laughs> this, is, this is my dream real job, my dream day job. You know, I never, I never resent going to work. I'm happy to go there. I love doing it. I make a difference there. I wouldn't do it if they didn't pay me. And they do. They pay me pretty well. And I'm one of the lucky ones because, you know, most actors don't have jobs like that. Most of them are waiting on tables and driving cabs. So I have this job, and I'm the chair of the theater department there, and that's new for me, too. <laughs> it's, uh, and since I have been there, we are building a performing arts center, an $18 million performing arts center, and... Um, Nobody there really knows very much about theater, and every, everybody there thinks they do, and they tend to discount what I may know about theater. I have a terminal degree in theater and some experience. So this has been a, uh, a remake of my, of my family life, <laughs> and it's just been, it's been astonishing. So I have learned in OA, in Overeaters Anonymous, how to work with others. Because uh, there is so much that I could have resented, and I could have made so many enemies. And uh, really, there the people at the college love me. I have a community there. It took me four years to establish credibility, and now I have a great deal of credibility. I thought since they hired me, I w I came in with credibility, but that's not the way it was. They hired me hoping that I was credible, and then I had to prove that I was. Um, so since that time, I've built a department, and it's pretty interesting building my own department because it, it's a reflection of who I am. You know, I didn't walk into somebody else's dysfunctional department. So, um, so I absolutely insist on running a department by group conscience. I won't do it any other way, and the reason is just exactly what these paragraphs said. We find most people are willing to cooperate cheerfully with decisions they help to make. Um, instead of arguing, sulking, nagging, or commanding, we learn to state our needs and desires in an adult way and to let others tell us theirs. So that's what I've learned. I've learned to state my needs and desires in an adult way. Um, we have a new person on board who doesn't know how to do that. And he's a sulker. He sulks and he commands. <laughs> I hope I'm not going to alienate anyone in this room, but I find that he works from sort of a male perspective and I work from a female perspective. You know, he comes from a competitive point of view. And I just don't want my staff competing with me. <laughs> and I really feel like, you know, if you can do it better than me, do it. 
I'm happy. I'm not getting paid to do this any more than he is. Just go ahead and do Well, he doesn't want to do it. He wants to sulk and command and criticize and blame. So um, I won't. So it's been pretty interesting because I won't allow it. But, you know, I have limits. I have boundaries now. And I have not actually had to say to him, because I don't have an intimate relationship with him, so I don't find it appropriate to say, I feel blank when you blank. I mean, I don't have to say, I feel scared when you give me the silent treatment. Um, instead, I have insisted on his telling me what he wants. I've insisted on all of us partaking in the decisions. I've insisted that all of our decisions are by the group. We recently made a decision that was um, supposedly all of us agreed 100%. I left the meeting saying, okay, so we're all behind this 100%. Yes. Next thing I know, students are coming back at me, angry with me and criticizing me for, for this decision that I had made. And I thought, where did that come from? They shouldn't even know about this decision yet. So um, called the meeting, told them that I'd had this experience and I wasn't comfortable with it and that I felt they had been um, prompted. And where did it come from? Well, he fessed up. And I said, I thought we made this decision together. He told me the reasons why he thought it was a bad decision. And I said, next time I say, are we all behind this? I mean it. And he just sort of stared at me like he didn't know what to do with that. And I said, do you understand? And that was the answer I got. <laughs> um, so I think it's going to be sort of a, I think it's going to be sort of a long road. And I am not going to buckle on the principles that I've learned in OA. I absolutely know that my department will be a functional department as long as I continue to operate by the traditions of Low Readers Anonymous that I've learned. I also have learned to use the traditions in my marriage. By the way, my marriage came from OA. Um, I met him at a retreat. Some of you know him. And uh, it was not easy the first seven years, I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> and it was mostly me. I thought he had to change, but once I changed, we were fine. <laughs> um, and that was working the steps, and it was, uh, it, it was pretty challenging and pretty difficult, and I'm crazy in love with him and uh, couldn't be happier. I've heard, like, I've heard three women today say that they are they're crazy in love. And they're, so I just thought, wow, I'm not alone. It's not just me. They're, this is available to you in Overeaters Anonymous. Um, there's one more thing I wanted to talk about. Oh. So when I, when I took this job, I thought that I was going to, I thought that I was going to quit acting, let go of the acting dream, and let go of Hollywood. Well, I started having trouble with food. And I thought, okay, I'm grieving the dream. I'm grieving, grieving the loss of the dream. And I never stopped grieving. And I wish I, wish I had time to tell you this story. It's a hilarious story, but I don't. I got back into acting. Well, I didn't quite get back into acting. I decided that I didn't want to do Hollywood anymore, but I still wanted to act, that acting was still a part of, part of what I did. And I couldn't really quite figure out how to do that. And then Ian at the Region Convention two years ago asked if I would chair the entertainment committee. And I said, yes, I would love to do that. And I prayed and meditated about what I should do. 
and um, and I kept getting back, do a solo show. And I thought, ah, I'm not going to do a solo show at Regency. They're going to think it's all about me. They're going to think it's me and my ego. They're going to, you know, it's, no. And I was also, like, trying to figure out how to solve this loss that I was feeling. And I heard this big, booming voice in my head. You may have heard me say that last night. And it was sort of like, I keep telling you to write. And I thought, wait a minute. My higher power doesn't talk to me like that. That's not how I hear my higher power in my head. And the answer was, today it is. You're not listening. I keep telling you to write. And now you have an opportunity to do a solo show, combining your acting and your writing. And so I did. And that solo show started launched a solo career. Um, I'm now writing a show about being a twin. And um, my OA show, I have rewritten and uh, have rewritten it for the public. So I've done that in, in quite a few places, actually. I would have never planned this for myself. I would have never thought, I'm going to teach and make a difference in the world and build a great theater department and act as a solo performer. Never in a million years. Um, Darn it, I hate it when my brain goes ahead of me and then I can't catch up. (laughs) I can solo show. Oh, I know what it was. So the show that I'm writing now is about being a twin. And uh, my twin and I have never been close. We've always been very competitive, which is probably why I dislike competition so much. Um, He was the golden boy, and I was, I'm just going to say it, I was the fuck up. And I I was the scapegoat for the family. I lived into it. I told you how I lived into that. And he could do no wrong, and I was stupid, ugly, fat, overly sensitive, and overly emotional. Uh, I have a completely changed relationship with my family now. They haven't changed. I have. I wouldn't spend all my time with them. I wouldn't spend ten days with them. But I do spend five or six or seven days with them and love them. Um, my family is terribly afraid of depth, of, uh, of a rich emotional life, of intimacy. They're terribly afraid of that. I've had to learn how to do that on my own, and I learned it here. I learned it in the meetings, and I learned it through the traditions. I didn't learn intimacy through the steps. Um, and recently, my brother separated from his wife, and he called me to tell me, and he was crying, and it's the second time in my life I've heard him cry. I'll do the proverbial, I'll wrap it up. <laughs> uh, I heard him cry, and uh, it tore me apart. And I started telling him my experience about being married and about my struggles and challenges and how we overcame them. And my brother and I have become good friends. I, this, is, this is in the last two years. I've been here for 17 years. I never in this world expected to know my twin brother. I just, you know, I don't expect to know my mother either. She's not knowable. Who knows? Maybe I'll know her someday. Uh, So I have this incredible relationship with my, no. I have a relationship with my brother that has some semblance of depth. (laughs) It's all he can do. And he has told my mother that I am, he is learning about intimacy from me. 
and that he he does not want to go back to his marriage now and because I've taught him what's available to him. So the myth is out. And especially when the golden boy said this to my mother, well, all of a sudden, all this wackiness that they thought I was has some meaning to them. So uh, I continue to be surprised at how the steps work in my life, what OA gives me, everything that is of value in my life, everything I got from OA. I got my job from OA. I got my husband from OA. I got all the things I love from OA. It all started here. It all started here, and it it astonishes me. I didn't get to talk at all about the musical, but I've always wanted to sing all my life. I'm not a singer. And I thought, okay, I'm going to sing in OA. (laughs) And I sang last night, and I was terrified out of my mind, and I was going to quit, and I was going to get an understudy, and I was going to hire someone else, and I I mean, I just went, this whole thing, but I don't know if I'm ever going to sing again, and more will be be revealed, because I'm still in the process, but I know that I suited up, and showed up, and sang, and who knows what's going to happen from there. So thanks for letting me share. Could we have the Ask It Basket? In fact, can you just, just send it around one oh, more time? Just in case. Diane Blanin. Just in case. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We will now have questions from the Ask It Basket. How do you turn your food over to an ultimate authority, a loving authority? I have turned it over completely because I don't have the power to do anything else. For many years, I dieted in OA. I used food plans. Uh, I have been thinner than I am, and I had to diet to do that. And I don't have the power to diet anymore. I don't have the power to change my weight anymore. Um, God knows I've tried. That that admission did not come easily. And finally, when I just could, because I eat well, I eat appropriate amounts of food, and I'm not a size 6 or a size 8, and I'd sure like to be. But you know what? I look like my mother, and I look like my grandmother, and I look like my aunts. I, you know, I can't outsmart my genes and heritage. And I, in order to do that, it's like four hours of work a day. So, um, so I turned it over. I just said, you know what? I can't do this anymore. You need to do this. I'm out of the picture now. And a whole bunch of things happened. Uh, it became really clear to me that things that I have cravings, the, the allergies that get set up in my body. Of course, I know that sugar was a problem for me. Uh, Last year, a whole bunch of things happened, not a whole bunch of things, you know, three or four different people, a nutritionist, a doctor, um, a chiropractor, my sister, who has the same blood type I have, all said, you need to not eat wheat. Well, by the time the fourth person said that, I thought, okay, fine. And Oh, and then another program person who has what I want said she doesn't eat wheat. So I thought, okay, I won't. So I stopped eating wheat, and in a month I lost 20 pounds. I couldn't believe it. Uh, And I became, I thought, okay, I have an allergy. This is an allergy. (laughs) 
this is just bizarre. And uh, those same people have also suggested I not eat dairy. Well, I haven't been willing to give up dairy. Uh, again, I don't eat very much. I, no, it's not that I don't eat very much. I eat appropriate amounts of food. I know what, God knows, I know what portions are uh, from all the dieting I've done. And because singing has been so challenging for me, I mean, two weeks ago, I couldn't sing. I just really just couldn't even get the notes out. And um, about seven years ago, I developed asthma. And so my sinuses, my asthma, all that stuff was really getting in the way. And I stopped eating dairy <laughs> for the show. I thought, just, just until Friday night. Just don't eat dairy until Friday night because they mess with, you know, dairy is supposed to mess with your lungs and stuff. So now I'm feeling like, Okay, I've made it this long without dairy. <laughs> Maybe I can go another day without dairy, and I'll see what happens. I'll see what happens to my health. This again, it's not me. This is higher power driven. This is again coming back to having done service, and and turning it over. And you know, someday I might be size six because I don't know what's going to happen. But I know that I can't get there on my own will. And I know that I can look at a food plan and say I'd like to eat that way, but I don't have the power to do it. I have to. I have to let my higher power do that for me. I've um, throughout the years gone through periods where I've called my food in and haven't called my food in. And I'm actually working with a new sponsor, and I had a sponsor for 10 years, and now and I was sponsorless for two weeks, and that freaked me out. And I have a new, very structured sponsor, which works well for me. And I am calling my food in again. But where the ultimate higher authority part comes in is, you know, anyone can tell someone what they're going to eat. And the key, and we all hear the key is just, you know, stick to what you say. For me, the key is, it's one word, it's honesty. It's just that simple. If I am honest about what I'm doing, it doesn't stop that whole roller coaster of guilt and manipulation. Because being the master manipulator that I am, and I've given my five-year-old daughter that title, I passed it on to her, I can take having, you know, a couple of carrots in the afternoon when I said I wasn't going to have them. And as strict or stupid as that may sound, I'm not trying to do, you know, the gray sheet mentality or the how mentality. I'm not talking about any of that. But what will happen with me, well, that couple of carrots will turn into a V8. Not bad. Will turn into diet hot chocolate. Will turn into chocolate. Will turn into, will turn into, will turn into. So if I want to have the effing carrots. Just let my sponsor know I'm having some carrots. Or whatever it is. So, again, um, when I'm honest, totally honest about what it is, whatever it is, I have a, um, a, a, a sponsor that I'm food someone I'm food sponsoring that, you know, was, she wasn't new in program, but she had gained a tremendous amount of weight from, from a relapse. And, like, over 100 pounds gained. And she asked me if we sponsor her, and I told her, but she didn't know if she could give up, blah, blah, blah. I said, I don't care what you eat initially. <laughs> didn't tell her initially, but I don't care what you eat. If you want to have a piece of cake, have a piece of cake. I don't care. Just tell me you're having it. But, you know, in like a three-week time, she had it once. You know, I mean, it's just because 
she was just being honest and didn't get the whole shame thing going on. So I um, and I don't recommend that for you know it's not something I recommend, but I knew for her she needed to just get into that little bit of stuff. She could start coming to meetings again, start talking to someone, get out of the isolation. But that's what it took. That's what it took, and it was the honesty that played the the important part, not you know. This rule or that rule, you know, gets back into that whole thing we're talking about with, you know, group conscious. We're here because we say we are. And um, so, for me, honesty leads right to a higher high relationship with my higher power. This tradition seems hard when people go on and on and no decision is made. What do you think? Um, you know, sometimes that happens, uh, especially, you know, I mean, at sometimes in the San Fernando um, Valley, in our delegates meetings, we put a cap of an hour and a half, half on delegate meetings, because they used to run three, four hours, and people were not giving service. And, you know, sometimes we don't get the answer that meeting. We have to go on and on. But, you know, ultimately, you, you get the answer that, that you're looking for. It would be very easy for one person to come up and say, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. And it might seem in the short run to be a great idea, we got the answer, everyone leaves, go home, go back to your lives. But in the long run, there's going to start being that underlying of, you know, dissent and I didn't want to do this and I didn't want to do that and it's going to start ebbing away. Um, so, you know, it's just that it's a matter of, of patience and trust and knowing that ultimately um, the decision will be will be the right decision. Looks like we have time for both of us to talk on these. Yeah, we do. Um, I'm so glad this came up. I've done service at the, at the group level, the intergroup level, the region level, and the world service level. Level. And I especially love world service. Um, and <laughs> They can line up her hours and debate for hours about the issues on the floor. And the first time I first time I was there, I was about two in program probably. I just couldn't believe these were my fellows. <laughs> I just thought, oh my, this is my group. <laughs> this is this is who I belong to. It's like, what is wrong with them? And uh, you know, it took like years to to get a book through and, to, and the, the, the things that they, they debated, I just couldn't believe. But what I have seen through the years is wonderful, wonderful things come of the group conscience. Yes, it takes longer. It's taking longer for me to run my department the way I want to run it too. Um, but I know from my experience in service that the group conscience is absolutely God's will. Absolutely God works that way. You know, and I'm watching I'm watching what's happening in OA now. I haven't been at World Service in a while, but I know that um, food plants are coming back in a different way. You know, that um, it's a that this the emphasis is spiritual and yet for some a plan of eating can really help or a food plan can really help. So I see God's will working all the time. Um, what do I do? So the question is, when people go on and on, uh, I know that God's will takes time. It just takes time. 
and and I have to be patient, and I usually get to work on my own character defects in situations like that. And also, um, it requires me to be a, a trusted servant. It's very easy for me to sit back and want to be a, a nice person, to want to be liked, to want to be good. Um, but I do have some leadership skills, and guess where I learned them? In a group, and world service is where I learned them. Um, so I will typically, when I run a meeting, I use Robert's rules because, you know, we're a bunch of nuts. <laughs> and that kind of structure really works for us. And if it doesn't get worked out, okay, fine. We work it out the next time. Uh, that's it. How do you know what is God's will and when it's not? Anytime it's not my will, it's God's will, basically. Um, you know, like I said, I, I, I'm a very good manipulator. I come from, um, I mean, my dad is a professional con man, and I'm not I'm being serious about that. Um, I grew up, you know, working in the con, as they say, um, and it, it's, you know, coming to program where I also met my, my husband in program and, and only have my life because of program. So anything I've ever tried to do um, has, never, has never worked out. Um, if it was dieting for the, the best friend's wedding, um, if it was... You know, you know anything. Um, with with program, I do have to do certain actions. There are things I have to do. Usually, things I don't want to do, so I know it's it's the right thing to do. I um, you know, take a converse action, and in that way, um, usually the results the results are the the way I um, need them to be. You know, I get what I need, not what I want. I've heard that a million times. It applies in my life. So you just have to, I, I believe, what works for me is not, you know, there's other things you want. And if you just know that you're going to get taken care of, it might not be in your timeline. And that's where God's will comes in the most for me, when it's in... It's going to be in the timeline that it's supposed to be in, not, not when I want it. And I have to apply that into my life, into my children's lives, you know, and, and stuff, because my children are not old enough to fend for themselves or make decisions for themselves. I, that's the one place where I, you know, I'm the boss. I'm the boss of decisions of where my kids are going to school or, you know, what they're eating, you know, what, everything. That's the one place where, yeah, I'm in control. You know, there's no sponsor for me to you know, like, you know, you know, be the, the parent and work my household. But I still have to incorporate OA in, into raising my family and knowing that, you know, things are not going to happen because I want them to. Yes, you know, my responsibility is to keep them safe and fed and clothed and educated and everything else, even though they're not in program. And it's still in what's going to happen for them is, is not in, in my will, you know, except for the basics. So it's for me the time thing. I know it's God's will and it's the right time for something to happen, not my time. I love these questions. I told you I was just really excited about this topic. 
whatever you probably noticed I just lost my train of thought last time so I'll finish up with that because I remembered now when I go to World Service and when I come here I walked in walked in the lobby yesterday and saw all shapes and sizes saw people who I've known for years uh, saw people who are brand new to program saw people who I think are nuts saw people who I think uh, absolutely have what I want and I felt at home like these are my fellows not oh my god these are my fellows like, this is who I am you know yes I've been 200 pounds yes I could be 400 pounds yes I could be one of the ones screaming and yelling at the microphone at World Service it absolutely is who I am and these are my fellows and I feel so grateful to have this community um, I know that God's will is working in my life if my life is working so I actually have a, a story or two to tell you about that. I'm so glad we have the time to talk about this, and I can't believe I'm going to talk, say this story in the microphone. Um, I'll go back to when I, when I was quitting acting, and, you know, I had those difficult years, and I kept grieving, and um, I, it was very clear, it was very clear that, that God's will for me was to take this full-time job and to teach and to chair this department. Uh, and so I didn't know what to do with the acting and this goes back to my brother so then this thing happened with my brother where he and I started getting close and uh, he wanted to he, he started getting some personal life coaching and wanted to do an exercise with me as practice and I said okay I'm willing for you to practice on me but I'm not going to promise I'm going to take your coaching <laughs> and uh, he said, okay. So it's called the Wheel of Life, and, uh, you know, you discover where your flat tires are in the Wheel of Life. Well, my flat tires were acting and travel, I think. And you have to get assign a number to it, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, where are you? And um, I was at a 1 on acting and a 2 or a 3 on travel, and he said, well, why don't we, why don't we talk about acting then? I said, I thought... No, let's not. <laughs> I just—it's hard to explain. Um, you can do everything you're supposed to do towards having an acting career and not have one. That's different than most careers. And I have done everything you're supposed to do, and I don't have the career I want. And I do not need somebody giving me some homework about what I can do, because if you do this, this, and this, then you can get there. And it's a lot, you know, it's a lot like trying to be in the MBA. Uh, it's not more difficult, I sometimes think. So uh, anyway, I thought, okay. So we started where he asked, you know, what would a 10 look like? What does 1 look like? Well, what can you do to get to a two? What can you do to get to a one and a half? So I talked about the things I could do. And then he finally said, would you be willing to do these things? And I thought, I just said I didn't want to be coached by him. But do, okay, I'm willing to do this. And at the very same time, this is a story I can't believe I'm going to tell you. I was... Um, I also had struggled with workaholism, and I stopped working too much. It was a very conscious effort to work on my workaholism, and um, and I replaced it with watching TV. <laughs> uh, and I'm not a TV. I, you know, I've been like 
people who watch TV too much, like, get a life. <laughs> and I've watched television, what I thought was good television, but I came home and I watched junk television. And I knew, I thought, okay, I understand middle America now. <laughs> you know, I come home from working like this and I just want to sit in front of the television. And I got hooked on Quantum Leap. Uh, I had never seen Quantum Leap in its heyday. And... Uh, I couldn't, during the day, I thought, ooh, quantum, you know, whenever something's going wrong, and it's like, it wasn't like, ooh, chocolate chip cookie, it was, ooh, quantum leap tonight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, I'm kind of doing that with Stargate right now, but, um, so I really got addicted to this show. Not a bad, and, and I knew it, and I thought, you know, there are worse things I could be addicted to, this is just fine. And then I got on the Internet, and I wanted to find out about the show, and I wanted to find out about Scott Bakula, who stars in the show. And uh, I wanted to find out about his training, because I thought he was just wonderful in the show, just wonderful. And I couldn't find out anything about his training. It was all, you know, the last Scott sighting was here, and <laughs> it's like, I want a Scott sighting, you know. And um, and then he showed it. Uh, there was a site that said he was going to be at a benefit in Los Angeles. Um, well, I can't remember the details, but and it was fifty dollars, and I wanted to go. So I talked to my husband into going. Anyway, I would I would sign off the internet, and I was very depressed, and realized I call it love addiction. It's not my it's not my term, but um, I've, I, I've wrestled with love addiction in my life, and I don't think that it's going to happen again. This is like going after people who can't love you back and getting hurt. And, you know, it's going after a turned back. Well, this started feeling familiar. I thought, this is how I felt when I was 13 with David Cassidy. <laughs> this is like when I'm 43, and this is called Bacula. It's like, I, this is weird. Um, but I recognized that, see, I started pining away for a television character. Not even the actor, the television character. So I was actually on my way to Palm Springs to a Region 2 committee convention, convention committee meeting, and I called my sponsor and said, I'm love addicted to a television character. And she completely understood. See what I mean? And I can't believe I'm saying this. <laughs> and she said, well, what she's always said in the past, tell me about him. I said, well, he started on Broadway in musical theater. Um, he, had a, he had a time travel show, and now he's the lead in Star Trek, which I'm, a, I'm not quite a Trekkie, but I never miss Star Trek. Now he has the lead in Star Trek. And besides that, he's gorgeous. And she said, well, sounds to me like those are all the things you want. And I said, well, how do I... How, how do I stop this? And she said, I think you just need to go after what you want and stop projecting it onto him. And at the very same time, my brother had just done this exercise with me. And I had done all the homework that I promised him that I would do towards getting the coach that I needed and into the classes that I needed to get to. So I took this class, and the casting director just went nuts over me. And I had my answer. My answer was, I don't get to quit acting. I, you know, I've always heard, um, if, there's, if there's anything else you can do, do it. And I've always thought, oh, there's all kinds of things I can do. That's a bunch of crap. And I, it's not true. I am one of those persons who 
can't do anything else. I, I will shrivel up and die. Actually, I'll grow giant <laughs> if I don't do it. But that was all divinely led. So how do I know God's will for me? I pray for God's will daily. And it was so clear that that was divinely led. And going back to what I said in my pitch, I could not have planned that. If I, if I didn't quit acting, I wouldn't have pursued full-time teaching. So I had to have my full-time teaching career before I pursued solo performance. And then I realized I, didn't, I just didn't feel good about myself unless I was doing, pursuing acting. I'm not even invested in the outcomes anymore. I just know that I'm happy pursuing it. And if things happen, great. And I know that if I'm not pursuing it, I'll get addicted to television characters. <laughs> And maybe worse than that, you know, maybe I'll go back to food. And, of course, I don't want that to happen. So um, this is a healing program. Um, I know that I'm doing God's will when my life is working at my college where I am up against a wall. Just one wall after another is put in front of me, and one wall after another just opens up. It just keeps going, and I keep going, okay, okay, I get it. It's, like, so clear that all of this is supposed to happen. And if those walls stayed there and if I had to, like, keep beating against them, and well, then I would know, you know, this is, this is not God's will for me. It's supposed to be easier and, more, and simpler than this. Other uh, questions, even if you don't have one in here for the ask it basket? We have about five or six minutes left, and I have a couple of backup questions here up my sleeve, so um, I'll address this to you guys. What do you say to newcomers at your meetings? go to a variety of meetings. Some are quite large, and we have some meetings that have, you know, 60, 70 people on a weekly basis. We have some meetings that have five or six. So at um, the smaller meetings, it's a lot easier to um, figure out who the newcomers are, first of all, and to, um, to get a, you know, to really sort of make sure they don't leave, leave the will. That's like my main thing, is to make sure no one leaves the will to know that they're always welcome, um, to know that they can, in the beginning, they can, you know, be as anonymous as they want to be. They can, you know, sit and and not qualify as a newcomer if it's too uncomfortable, or you know, they can qualify and and in some of our meetings we're very lucky that we have a newcomer sh- uh, chairperson that you know, speaks to the newcomers either before or right after the meeting, helps them hook up with sponsors. Um, you know, I feel very blessed to be in, in program where, where I am because, you know, there there is, I mean, when I hear people in, in the valley say, oh, God, that means, like, you know, 20 minutes away, it's too far. I just look at them. And, I, you know, be, being given from, you know, my my travels and from going to meetings in different places. Um, I mean, I remember once I was up in in, uh, in Seattle visiting a friend, and we went like like the closest meeting was, you know, an hour away on a particular night. So, so I'm very grateful that we have the ability for uh, for everyone, newcomers included, to find meetings when they need them. We just really try to make them feel welcome. And I know for me personally, because um, where I go to meetings, I uh, 
you know, I know a lot of people. I try really not to make it like a big social time for me, especially this one meeting I go to. It's, um, you know, it's a 100-pounders meeting on Wednesday night. I'll walk into a room, there are 78 people in the room, and I know 50 of them. So my job is not to go talk to my friends. My job is to, you know, hunt out the person that's sitting there looking a little, you know, bewildered why am I here, what's going on, like, you know, all these people, you know, chatting, hi, hugs, kisses, and I don't do it all the time because I'm not perfect. <laughs> but, you know, I whenever I see someone sitting there, I either you know, try to go over to them or, or just make sure that someone has, you know, gone. I watch and I, I see if I'm talking to someone and I see someone sitting there alone. I After I'm done, I look back to see if they're still sitting there. Um, you know, it gets me out of self. So I guess um, it's really important to to not have the newcomers leave, leave the world. If they might not understand, you know, because I certainly didn't understand. I mean, I was one of those people I came into OA and when I came in, I went to the newcomers meeting, and I'd never heard of OA, never heard of AA. I mean, I heard of OA because I read a TV, um, TV article about it. Uh, an actor had broken his um, accident, and it was very funny. I saw him in a meeting about a year ago, and I hadn't, I'd never met him before. And I'd, um, this was 14 years ago, and I, I told him that, you know, he saved my life because, because of his article I got introduced to, to OA. And he said, I got a lot of flack for breaking my anonymity. I said, well, this is one you know, one person you save, so I, I thank you. But I, I guess um, to, the, to the newcomers, we just encourage them to, to come back to, you know, I mean, if they don't hear something that makes sense to them, try another meeting, make sure they get the meeting list, uh, give them your phone number, call them, get their phone number, call them, don't let them, then, you know, grasp away the most amazing thing. I came into the program when I was 28 it's about 28 years old, and I've been miserable for many years before that. And I love the most, the thing I love the most is when I see these 18, 19, 17-year-old girls come into program, you know, and they don't have to have those extra 10, 20 years of misery and pain. So, when I, you know, when I see young girls come in, I just, you know, grab at them. I just, you know, want them to start living the promises and living this wonderful life. I mean... I saw a girl out, out here that's in prison about 10 years that I remember when she was 16. And she's blossomed into this amazing, amazing young woman. And, you know, I remember her pain when she first walked in and her sitting in the back of the room, you know, with the sweatshirt around her in the summer and just being so miserable. You know, and when you're that young and you're, you know, your friend's dating and this and that. And, you know, I went, I went through that stuff, you know, at certain times. I was always like one of those up and down 50 pounds. And... When you're a kid, it's, it's awful. People are god-awful. So, and, and so it doesn't matter what age. Just, you know, grab them. Don't let them escape. It's like, a, you know, the best way you can, don't let them escape back out there because we know how blessed we are being in here. You know, I'll just ditto that absolutely and reinforce it by saying that that is not easy for me to do. I really like to stick with the people I know in the meeting, get my love, love them, and let other people take care of the newcomer. But a lot of times, no one's taking care of the newcomer. Uh, and like I said, I'm an introvert by nature, and I like people to come to me. So I really feel like if I can do it, anyone can. It takes all my courage to say, hi, I'm Susan. 
how are you, and start talking to them. That's one of the reasons I like service so much. I don't have to say, hi, I'm Susan, how are you? I just start working, because remember, I like to work. Uh, I start working, and then I get to know people that way. So, so what a wonderful question and a wonderful reminder. That's probably the most important thing we can do is make the newcomer welcome. And not just the newcomer. You know, I moved from Orange County to L.A., and I go to Orange County meetings because I feel welcome in Orange County. I'm not a newcomer in L.A., and I've never felt terribly welcome there. I hate to say that on a tape because I'm an old-timer and I don't have a group of friends there. So you know what? I go back where the smiles are. I go back to the room where when I walk into the room, they smile at me. I think it's probably one of the most important things. So thanks for the question. Thank you. I'd like to thank our speakers for giving service. It is now time to close this workshop. After a moment of silence, please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference.